I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. In this episode, I'm joined by an entrepreneur whose story began as a teenager, selling cricket bats in school. From there, he graduated to a business operated from his parents' garden shed before growing to become one of the most successful sports equipment retailers in the UK, turning over more than £20 million a year. The company is called Networld Sports and its founder is Alex Leven. Welcome to the show. Hello. Alex, I'm really looking forward to hearing about your journey. It's a particularly impressive one, uh, given the fact you're in your very, very early 30s. So you've probably had to do this many, many times, but just tell me, give me the origin story in the cricket bats. Um, this is a relatively simple story, but it started when I was young. I think like any young person, you have dreams and aspirations. And when I was in school, I suppose I wanted to, to achieve everything possible and fundamentally achieve great things. I didn't come from a wealthy background or a business background. But I suppose I just was always subconsciously looking for a business opportunity. And then when I was 13, I think it was, I uh, I was playing cricket in school, wasn't particularly good, but I bought a cricket bat off eBay and um, I paid £60 for it. It came in the post and it occurred to me and I just thought, how much does this actually cost? So I contacted the manufacturer and they said uh, it, it would cost £6 to buy. And as soon as I heard that, I realised I've got a business. So I bought six in, sold them to people at school broke the rules because obviously you weren't meant to sell over £10 or something, but I think some rules are there to be broken and that was certainly one of them. That was the starting point and then it went from a hobby and I suppose as it evolved, as I got older, it became more and more serious and now uh, we've been a limited company for 10 years and um, yeah, I suppose the landscape's very different. Well, I'll come on to more of the details. So it sounds like you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You were looking for an opportunity to make money from as far as you can remember, really. Yeah, uh, I never necessarily used the word entrepreneur. I think I was just always conscious about, you know, achieving something, not talking about it because talking is easy, but actually achieving something. And I think I just knew because of the environment it was, I was in, I was like, it is possible. It is possible. And then as soon as I saw this, I, I ran with it. I just did it. So you, you sold Cricket Bats and then you incorporated the business and that required more capital. And just, just talk us through the, the kind of the early years. Yeah, I suppose when I was at school, I think I probably had a few hundred pounds, possibly a thousand pounds saved up. I remember I always saved when I was young and I was, I'd was i be there with my money box, counting the coppers, taking them to the bank. So in school, I think that's that's what funded the first, I suppose, investment in, in product. And then from there to this very day, it's all been a case of reinvesting profits to grow. We've never had to seek or raise capital. And I suppose in the early days, you know, if you spent, I don't know, let's say a thousand pounds on an order and you turn that into, I don't know, £3,000 or something, well, there you go, you've, you've got your next... Um, so next you've seen it so. always as very simple. You never thought about, I need to go and raise some money and there's going to be a hockey stick growth you no. know, in terms of cash flow. You've thought, I need to buy something for a pound and sell it for three yeah. and then I can grow my business that way. Yeah, I mean, ideally bigger margins than that, but yeah, absolutely, that was the principle. <laughs> so let's talk us through the growth from there. So you've got a business now that's what, employing over 100 people, tens of millions of revenue, and you've done this, you know, deal by deal, sell by sale, never raised a penny. Just talk us through how you've done that, because I think sometimes that approach to building a business can, can be lost. I think there can be a focus on, you know, raising money, 
which you know can be a free option and can be um, pretty precarious if you fail to do that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I think it is probably quite unconventional. And if so, if you look on um, on lists, I don't know, such as the fast track lists of the top fastest growing companies, privately owned companies, the majority will have had um, have raised capital one way or another. But that's always been, I suppose, the, the polar opposite of what I saw that was the best route. And frankly, we didn't need it. And I think if you have a good business model and you execute it correctly, you shouldn't necessarily need it. And it's discipline, I think, is tremendously key. I remember the first three years we ran a business, I didn't spend a single penny on myself, not a single penny. And, you know, you are you have the advantage. You're living at home with your parents. That obviously is always much easier to start a business. That's why, you know, again, anyone listening, the best time to start a business is with your young because I always looked at it like this. It can't really fail because it's just experience. Well, also, you can, you can to some extent afford to fail. Yeah. Because uh, you don't have, you know, lots of yeah. dependence or, you know, obligations. It, exactly. And and I think, um, you know, young people tend to have the hopes and dreams and, and sort of the aspirations and, you know, they're just a tremendously positive outlook. And if you tie that in and you marry it up with a business idea, it can really, really fly. Just set out the store, I can call it that, of the business and what you sell to explain. Because if you say to people with a sports equipment retailer, you think, hang on a minute, there's some big players in the high street that do that. What's this guy doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. So again, the way we position ourselves is, obviously, we're not on the high street at all. And the big retailers on the high street, they'll be selling clothing or trainers. We focus on more of the equipment. So it's it's not particularly glamorous, but businesses don't need to be glamorous. That's not the purpose of a business. So we will sell products that you need to, say, train with. So it could be fitness training. It could be training for any sport. So something like from cones, hurdles, ladders, all those things that we'd use for that. And then we actually sell the physical equipment. So whether it be for tennis, you would need a tennis net, you would need a tennis post, you would need an umpire's chair, you would need the windbreak screens to go around the tennis court. Whether it be for golf, if you go to a golf driving range, we sell all the equipment you need to kit a golf driving range out, the perimeter fences to stop balls going on roads. And I suppose the well, a big sector for us is obviously football. And we'll do everything from the goalposts that all the Premier League clubs would use. So at Manchester United, they have all of our equipment right down to what you'd find in a garden. And we have a brand called Forza, which basically is, is solely focused on football and sports that incorporate, I suppose, goalposts. And um, we sell, I think, a huge, well, a huge number of these products. Uh, every year. And the key thing for us is obviously it's export. Sport is sport in any corner of the world. So again, I leveraged the power of export very early on in the journey. Um, so when you say you have your brand, um, so yeah. you're not... You're not, you're not the middleman. You're not buying these things and just you know making a margin as they go past. You're adding value. You're finding products. You're working with a supplier, like a manufacturer, I guess, and you're adding value in terms of design. And it's your brand that's on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're passionate about a product, say whatever your product is, you want to sell. If you're selling somebody else's product, there's not much legacy. Basically, all you can do is you can sell that product, and the customer will want that brand it won't necessarily come back to you it will come back to where they can get that brand and you could market that brand but again what is the legacy for you as a person and you as a business and I always realized that very early on and also you can see how retail on the high street and the pressures it's come under retail is is brutal so any area where there's sort of margin which can be cut you know is obviously going to give you a stronger business model so I always thought 
the only products I want to sell are the products with our name on. And then we will make people want our products and the only place they'll be able to get them is us. And I was always very sort of dogmatic with that because, yeah, you could sell your products, you could get retailers to sell your products. A lot of our products are quite mass market. But again, you'll sacrifice margin straight away. We have a great distribution set up. We have a great warehouse. We can distribute all over the world. We can deliver America to the US in, in 24 hours. It's all through a website. That's all direct. Yeah. So well over 60% of our sales are from our own websites. And whether it's our Forza brand, whether it's our Ford brand, whether it's our Vermont brand, that's all our products. And as you say, we've developed them. There are ideas. We've improved them, developed them. They're constantly evolving because we want our, that's the key thing is we don't sell that many products. We're not a pile it high, sell it cheap. We're not a big jumble sale. We have the right products at the right price. You know, if you position yourself right in the market, you're easily, you, you open yourself to throw 70% of potential customers. 10% will probably always go for the cheapest, perhaps even 20%, and then 10% will always go for the most expensive. But if you position yourself in the right place, you've suddenly got 70% of the world. Have you, have you invented products then? So have you been in markets where you've thought, hang on a sec, there's an opportunity there, we need something like this, and actually created some IP? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a real world example I can quote recently, which has enabled us to, I suppose, access all of the top football clubs around the world and so in all their training grounds they have obviously big football goals like the big big ones previously to move them they'd be on wheels but they'd just arc they wouldn't rotate so obviously like a shopping trolley you can move a shopping trolley in any direction so there was no goal which you could just move in any direction that was the feedback we knew that's what people wanted we developed it we've patented it and it's like literally spreading like wildfire and it's been very hard you know we've had to push ourselves we've had to air freight samples in we've had to do all that kinds sounds of so simple though, doesn't it but yeah, exactly. It is. It is. It's basically giving people what they want and understand the market. And that's why you can't, there's no shortcut to that. You've got to know your product. You've got to know your customer. So how did you grow the business? So, you know, it's okay having um, a great differentiated product and good service and great distribution and you've added some value, but you still need to, you know, get in front of people. So in terms of sales and marketing, this is what a lot of young companies struggle with. Um, is sales and marketing and you know yeah you can, you can waste a lot of money on marketing very very quickly and if your sales force isn't good and managed properly have the same outcome yeah no i mean that's a it's, a it's a great question surprisingly enough i have a very simple answer i always said the key to selling is make your product available to as many people as possible and obviously i when i was young i probably rode the crest of the e-commerce revolution and obviously what does the internet allow you to do put your product in front of so many people and you know when I was young I was like well just make it you know if you sell internationally again you're opening up your product from the 65 million people of the UK to the seven and a half eight billion people of the world and every territory every market you go into that's just another door opening and if you think from a marketing perspective this is where I'm very um I have very strong beliefs and ideas you know you can have a total relaunch you could change the color of the building you could change the interior or you could go and open it up at another market which is going to have a bigger impact on your headline sales changing some wallpaper or opening your doors to a new market and every time it's a new market so that's why you can easily get bogged down in the convention of just doing relaunch rehash after rehash but it's, it's like what is it actually achieving but were you out selling that so i'm assuming the early days you the, the founder typically for many years, is the salesperson. Yeah, I was the salesperson, I was the customer service person. But again, I think that's good. And I think it just you do everything in the business, you know the business, you know the challenges. And when you have people phoning up, I remember we did a huge order 
it was for um, an event at the O2 Arena where we had to supply all the AstroTurf for the floor. So we do like AstroTurf artificial grass as well. And we had to do all the netting for the surround to protect the crowd in the O2. And it's probably only, I don't know, we weren't that big at that time, but this was the biggest order ever. It was going to be, I think, 40, 50,000 pounds. And it was an events company on the phone. And they were asking all these questions, but I could see their idea. I could see we had the products. I had no idea how we were going to make it work, but I knew we could. So again, I it went with the concept of win the business, worry about the details later. And it all went absolutely fine, but I didn't um and ah. I just said, yes, we can do this because of all this. And we we executed it perfectly. But it's that, you know, if you have a belief in your product, belief in what you're going to do, the sky's the limit. One thing I've noticed talking to you is that your brands, your product brands, they're not net world sports. You've created sub-brands like Forza, for example. And why was that? Again, not been a traditional marketeer. There's no great big plan. In fact, there was never even a business plan. There's only a, an evolving plan in my head. I suppose I came up with the business name Networld early on because obviously we were selling nets. Again, it wasn't particularly imaginative name, but it, you know it, it, it did the trick. And and then we evolved that to Networld Sports slightly, I think, from an SEO perspective. And then as we wanted to introduce our own brands, we just knew that you needed, I suppose, a fundamentally a shorter name for it to work. Uh, I suppose we could have abbreviated it to NWS. But um, no, I just I think Forza just came to my head when we were looking for it. And in Italian, it means like power and strength, something along those lines. So you didn't spend a week sitting in a room with branding consultants, it no, sounds like. the ability, this is what is really important for anybody listening to this. If they can grow a business and start a business and they have control, they can make decisions in a split second. And if they have multiple stakeholders, they'll have to consult, they'll have to do all the due diligence, they'll have to do different you know, consultations and it just slows everything down. I think there's that famous story, like, I think it was a big international company bought Bebo, that totally forgotten social media platform. They spent 18 months thinking about what to do with it, and by the time they decided it, it was worth nothing. And I think they spent like 500 million on it or something ridiculous. You know, procrastination and gets you absolutely nowhere. The last part of your business is um, selling internationally, exporting. But you amazingly offer one-day shipping to America, I think two-day to Australia. I mean, this obviously goes back to your point about adding value to your customers, which is great. But how do you do that? I suppose it comes back from getting into export very early on in the business. You know, it's having the right partners to the US. Obviously, FedEx are critical to that and they provide a, a very good service and it works well. And it really does offer us, the you know, like if you are communicating or interacting with a customer in the US and they know you're in the UK, they might be a little bit you know, not put off, but like, well, that's not necessarily normal. But then when you can say you can ship something to them and it'll be delivered the next day, they're like, blimey, that's good. And that sort of nullifies that, you know, the geographical, the the Atlantic Ocean is so longer, it's suddenly not an ocean. It's a, it's a mere pond. You built a very successful business and you're clearly very passionate, you're clearly in the detail and you, you've overcome lots of lots of obstacles. So it'd be interesting to hear, hear some of them because I can... I can see that you are tenacious and that whatever came at you, you found a way around it. And whether, you know, three or four obstacles, that you know, some days I guess you thought, it's just all over. I'm going to have to, you know, take my ball and go home, pardon the pun. What were they? I mean, early days, this is, I mean, that's, and that's, that's always the key. It's the early days. When things go wrong in the early days, that's when you've got a big problem. I remember we got a container of one product from India and it was basically completely unsaleable. So it required my dad to repair and modify, I think it was about probably 600 units 
on um, on this container to make it saleable. And that probably took him, I don't know, an hour per unit. So it's something horrendous, probably more than that. And bear in mind, at that point, I'd wrote my dad in to pack all the goods. So all the orders we sold were packed by my dad. So it was a proper family business. Um, so again, you know, and you wait, you've probably waited six months for this container and what comes on it is a heap of junk. So um, those are never good days. Uh, and then I suppose it's just, a, you know, the continuing pressure. So... You know, I talked about we've got this 360 wheel, which you can move, allows you to move football goals in all directions. We've got orders left, right and centre for it, but we haven't got the products here yet. So we have to air freight them in and that costs thousands and thousands. So, again, that's not ideal. Um, but, but I guess that's short term. Eventually, you'll, yeah, and you'll it, get the supply and chain it, right. Just, every problem has been short term. You know, say when we started the business, we were in Shropshire, uh, which is a very rural county and hiring was quite difficult. Um, I was going to come on to that because you've got a hun- over 100 people now. Yeah. It gets to the point I, I found in my business is that once you get over 100, you stop knowing everyone's name sometimes. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's important that we have a cohesive workforce that knows where we're going, what the aspirations are of the business, because then they can all feel part of the journey. Um, so, you, so your plan, your vision in some ways, I see a lot of this in your head, but you need to take the team with you. So how do you communicate that and make sure they're all on the same page? You just have a very simple vision explaining exactly how we're going to execute it and in a way that's so straightforward, everybody can understand it. I mean, the beauty of some departments is what they do is fundamentally complicated, but they could explain it to everybody in about three sentences. And that's the thing. The moment anything becomes complicated, it's foggy and you cannot see a path. And I say to someone, everyone, if we're doing something and we can't quite see the solution, we can't quite see the path, we're doing something wrong. Because what we're doing is simple. It doesn't need to be complicated. So if it ever happens, we stop and take stock and look what we're doing wrong. Simplicity underlines everything. So what advice would you give to anyone listening about trying to develop their own branded product? So you, you, I think you say, and I kind of agree with you, the middleman's being squeezed out, so you need to create value. And if somebody wants to go and you know, develop a product or you know, go to China or India and find one and bring it here and sell it. What are your top tips? My top tips, um, you've got to be really ruthless with the suppliers because if you're not careful, you'll develop a product with a supplier and then at the last minute you go, no, they're not quite right, and then you'll find another supplier. But then the supplier you've 99% developed the product with will just go and flog it to everybody else. So basically you've just killed your idea in in an instance. You've got to pick your supplier very carefully incredibly carefully they can't go in show that product when you're smaller they don't care do they yeah but how do you how do you do that yeah but you can mask that because if i looked at the emails i sent when i was starting the business to the emails that i sent now they would be identical the theme would be the same and you know you can go tentatively at first but then once you pick one you've really got to be sure on it Um, and again it depends on the nature of the product if it's something that's already on the market and you're just sort of tweaking it slightly to suit your vision, it doesn't really matter. But if it's something completely new, something that will evolve the market or is fundamentally better, you've got to be really careful because you can't really, you won't be able to afford patenting it and do protecting the product because it's just so expensive and so time-consuming. So how did you deal with the working capital then? So you're growing, and sometimes you want to grow a little bit faster than your working capital might allow, especially if you've got stuff sitting in you know, containers how did you cope with that, given the fact you haven't raised any external finance? Obviously, cash flow... Did is that paramount. hold you back? Cash flow is obviously always paramount to any business, and none so more than ours. I mean, the aim of the game every month is make sure you've got enough money to pay people. For us, 
I think it came back to having a very good business model. And it was, oh, it has been tough. And I'm just, I'm sitting here and it just sounds like this roller coaster of excitement. But it has been, you know, unbelievably hard and total sacrifice. I mean, that's the thing. And it's generally, I would say. So you never use factoring or? No, no, no yeah. factory, no nothing. But it's just, I remember one that I can tell a little story that I think at a very early on, I think it was Easter weekend and all my friends were going to the seaside or something over for the weekend or something. And I thought, no, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to work and, you know, because of the phone, I'd be the one answering the phone. And that day, I probably did about five, six thousand pounds on the phone, which back then for a small business was huge. But I could have just chosen to do the easy route, which would go to the seaside. But it's just, you know, through that total dedication and commitment, you put yourself ahead. And it is, I think, just how much sacrifice. I think it, uh, how quick you grow and how much you have of the at the end of it is heavily down to sacrifice. And, and, how and that's much a theme, you're... actually. I think through these podcasting entrepreneurs forget sometimes that, you know, sacrifice, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, give up your whole life and lose track of your whole family, but it is, you are giving up something to build a business. Yeah, massively. And I, I think when I, so when I started the business, like the first three years, I said I spent no money on myself whatsoever. I didn't even visit any of my friends in university or anything. I literally was like a hermit. Um, and you know it was very hard. I think there's pictures of me. I have hair held longer than a hedgerow, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, look what it's produced. So I think determination, dedication, and a great idea, and and be prepared to sacrifice. So, so what about work-life balance? Um, talking to you and having met you in, on this podcast, have you got a work-life balance right? <laughs> I'm not convinced. Um, I've got a work-life balance that makes me happy obviously the business is everything to me absolutely everything i've put my heart and soul into it and when i'm on top of everything and it's going well i'm very happy i mean this month on last year we're 90 percent up unbelievably on this month last year i don't think the month will finish like that but it's better to be 90 percent up at the start than 90 percent down so, so your, your business is very much alive which yeah. is no i'm happy i mean mental health in business is you know is anything in life is very very difficult but again it's you manage it don't you you manage your physical health you get to look after yourself yeah i do a lot of cycling um good man uh we came back from a cycling trip or a training camp as i should have said to in girona a couple of weeks ago a roadie yeah, road bike, yeah, yeah. And you've got to stay fit and healthy because it makes your brain more agile, you have more energy. Um, and I think whatever you do, you can't let business get too, get no, you've take got to, over. You've got to find a balance. But it, I think because ev- everybody's different, you've got to find your own personal way of managing it. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. Like one more tip of your years of experience for entrepreneurs, what would it be? Just one. I know it's hard to do. I get asked this a lot, but what is it? If I was to give one tip, one tip I would say... Do follow your gut. Don't necessarily follow convention. Don't follow what a textbook says. Don't necessarily feel compelled to to do what anybody tells you. If your gut is giving you an overwhelming steer to do something like this, do it like that. Because if you don't follow your gut, you're invariably just going to tie yourself in knots. And that's certainly what I've done is followed my gut and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Well, Alex, thank you for that. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Uh, Fantastic business and congratulations. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. My thanks again to Alex Leven, founder of NetWorld Sports. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. 
I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.